Good evening and welcome. Thank you very much for coming tonight. We're going to see number three. Number three. Come thou long expected Jesus born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth, our dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Number three. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and
14, O holy night. The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary soul rejoices. Number 14. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly
very much for coming. This is, of course, the last night of this week's series. And thank you all for your kindness in inviting me and for your support during the week. It's been a rough week weather-wise. Maybe you found it a rough week preaching-wise. I don't know. But I've enjoyed being here, and I deeply appreciate your kindness. We're going to ask for God's blessing on you and on this meeting. Father, we bow in the name of the Lord Jesus and thank thee for the Savior. We have sung about this great wonder that Christ the Lord would be born, that he would be born in a manger, that he would be born among the poor, that the announcement would go to mere shepherds, and that while the great movers of power and uh, government would know nothing of what had happened, it was revealed that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. We thank thee for his love and compassion and grace. And we pray that as we preach his gospel tonight, that it may please thee to bless each one here, each family represented, and use thy word in bringing men and women to the Lord Jesus for salvation. We commit thy word today, asking thy help in the Savior's worthy name. Amen. Now all our readings are going to be in the book of Psalms tonight. That, of course, is Israel's hymn book, the book of Psalms. They had a hymn book with 150 selections. And we're going to read from three of them tonight. Psalm 107. Psalm 107 and verse 8. Psalm 107 and verse 8. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. So this is not the Lord calling on us to praise him. It is the exclamation of someone awed by God's praiseworthiness and saying how fitting it is that we should praise the Lord. Now, Psalm 145. Psalm 145. There is another psalm that has a title, Psalm of Praise, but this is the only psalm in the 150 psalms, this is the only psalm that has this inscription, David's Psalm of Praise. Notice that in David's Psalm of Praise, he says, if you look down to verse 3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Now once that note has been struck, notice what happens. In all of the remaining psalms, they begin and end with the same words, praising the Lord. So 146, 147, 148, 149, 150, they all begin and end with the same statement, hallelujah, or praise ye the Lord. When you come to Psalm 150, and if you'll turn to that now, please, Psalm 150, you will notice that every verse has the word praise in it at least twice. So this has been a rising crescendo through the book, if you will, and now we're coming to the last, and it's going to be, be bursting with the idea of praise to God. So as some of you would know, one of the titles that God chose as his name was actually an abbreviation of Jehovah, and it looks like Jah in our English Bible. There is no hard J sound, as far as I know, in the Hebrew language, so it's actually pronounced Yah. Hallelujah is the word for praise linked with the name God. So it's Hallelujah, which is praise the Lord, which is exactly what we have here. I think it occurs four times in the New Testament and all the rest of the others, 26 times, it is in the Old Testament, praise ye the Lord. Notice 
Psalm 150. Praise you, the Lord. Praise God in the sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the psaltery and harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and organs. Praise him upon the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Now, of course, we're looking tonight at the Halloween chorus. And if you think, well, Holy Night is difficult to sing, imagine if I had asked you to sing the Halloween chorus. We're not going to do that tonight, but we want to learn from it. George Frederick Handel was born in Germany on February 23rd, 1685, just five weeks before Johann Sebastian Bach. Handel's father strongly favored the study of law over music. But as a boy, Handel hid a harpsichord in the attic and practiced privately. Once he accompanied his father to the court of the German Duke Johann Adolf, he idly wandered into the chapel, found an organ, and started improvising, and it caused the Duke to ask, who is this remarkable child? That remarkable child soon began composing operas, first in Italy, then in London. Like his fellow composer Bach, Handel was also renowned as a virtuoso organist. One Sunday, after attending worship services at a country church, Handel asked the organist permission to play a postlude. As the congregation was leaving the church, Handel began to play with such expertise that the people hurried back to reclaim their seats. All the while he played, they refused to leave. Finally, the regular organist intervened, saying that Handel had better stop or the people would never go home. <laughs> Handel's music has been played at every British coronation for 250 years. Beethoven said of him, he is the greatest composer that ever lived. I would uncover my head and kneel before his tomb. Mozart said of him, Handel understands better effect than any of us. When he chooses, he strikes like a thunderbolt. Bach said of him, Handel is the only person I would wish to see before I die. He is the only person I would wish to be were I not Bach. Upon hearing the Hallelujah Chorus, Joseph Haydn is said to have wept like a child and exclaimed, he is master of us all. By his 20s, he was the talk of England, and he was the best-paid composer on the planet. Queen Anne had him commissioned as official composer of music for state occasions. He opened the Royal Academy of Music. Londoners fought for seats in his every performance. His fame spread around the world, but the glory passed. Audiences dwindled. His music became outdated. The Academy went bankrupt. Newer artists eclipsed the aging composer. One project after another failed, and Handel grew depressed. The stress brought on a case of palsy that crippled some of his fingers. At 52, the once famed musician was now seen as invalid and obsolete. Handel's great days are over, wrote Frederick the Great. His inspiration is exhausted. When a friend unwittingly told him about the dreariness of some music he had heard at the Vauxhall Gardens, not realizing that Handel had composed it, Handel rejoined, you are right, sir. It is pretty poor stuff. I thought so myself when I wrote it. Yet his troubles also matured him, softening his sharp tongue, his temper mellowed, his music became more heartfelt. One morning, and this is an historic moment, Handel received in the mail a script from a Christian friend, Charles Jennings, who was a devout and evangelical Christian. He was deeply concerned about the rising influence of deism and other strains of enlightenment thought that he regarded as dangerous. 
Drawing on source material from the King James Bible and the Book of Common Prayer, Jennings had compiled and edited a concise distillation of Christian doctrine from Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah's coming all the way through the New Testament record of the birth, crucifixion, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and then to the promised second coming and day of judgment. Jennings proposed that it form the basis of an oratorio expressly intended for performances in a secular setting during the week immediately preceding Easter. According to the Cambridge Handel scholar Ruth Smith, quote, Messiah would be directed at people who had come to a theater rather than a church during Passion Week to remind them of their supposed faith and their possible fate. The opening words from Isaiah 40 moved Handel, comfort you, comfort you, my people. On August 22nd, 1741, Handel shut the door on a, a little house in Brook Street in London and started composing music for the words. He intended to depict Christ's life, death, resurrection, eternal glory, and a concept of redemption. He grew so absorbed in the work that he rarely left his room, hardly stopping to eat. Within six days, part one was complete. Now, I don't know about you, but I could write music if my life depended on it. And to think that he would do part one in six days. Nine days later, he finished part two. And in another six days, part three. The orchestration was completed in another two days. Handel never left his house for those three plus weeks. A friend who visited him as he composed found him sobbing with intense emotion. Later, as Handel groped for words to describe what he experienced, he quoted the Apostle Paul, saying, Whether I was in the body or out of my body when I wrote it, I know not. I saw the great God himself on his throne and all his company of angels. In all, 260 pages of manuscript were filled in a remarkably short time of 24 days. Sir Newman Flower, one of Handel's many biographers, summed up the consensus of history in these words. Considering the immensity of the work and the short time involved, it will remain, perhaps forever, the greatest feat in the whole history of music composition. Handel's title for the commissioned work was simply Messiah. Now please note that. It's not the Messiah. It is Messiah. It is one of the most popular works in the Western choral canon. It became Handel's best known and most beloved work unsurpassed in sacred music. The most famous movement, of course, is what we're looking at tonight, the Hallelujah Chorus, which concludes the second of the three parts. And of course, the words, the text is drawn from three passages in the New Testament book of Revelation. Messiah was first performed at Fishamble Street, Dublin, in April 1742 as part of a charity series of concerts that Handel was invited to give by the Lord Lieutenant. 142 men were freed from debtor's prison by the proceeds donated from the performance of Messiah. On March 23, 1743, Messiah opened in London to enormous crowds. Handel led from his harpsichord, and King George II, who was present that night, surprised everyone by leaping to his feet during the Hallelujah Chorus. Nobody knows why. Some believe the king, being hard of hearing, thought it was the national anthem. Others say he was overcome with emotion. No matter. From that day, audiences everywhere have stood in reverence during the singing of the staring words, Hallelujah, for he shall reign forever and ever. J. Wilbur Chapman, records that when Queen Victoria went to hear Messiah, she was reminded that as a queen, she was not to rise when others stood for the Hallelujah Chorus. 
But when, hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth the sun, she sat with great difficulty. It seemed as if she would rise in spite of the custom of kings and queens to remain seated. Finally, when they came to the words, King of Kings, the young queen suddenly rose and stood with bowed head as though she would take her own crown from off her head and cast it at his feet. Andre Rieu said that this about the Hallelujah Chorus. I personally do not know a composition that has more joy in it and at the same time more hope than this music. Handel personally conducted more than 30 performances of Messiah. Next time you see an NFL player point to the sky when he scores, please recall this. On one occasion, an orchestra presented Handel's Messiah so beautifully that the applause was thunderous and everyone turned toward the composer. Handel stood up and with his finger pointed upward, silently indicating that the glory should be given to God rather than to himself. Many of these concerts were benefits for the Foundling Hospital, of which Handel was a major benefactor. Handel repeatedly revised his oratorio and it reached its most popular version in the performance to benefit the Foundling Hospital in 1754. The thousands of pounds, now that's money, the thousands of pounds that Handel's performances of Messiah raised for charity led one biographer to note, quote, Messiah has fed the hungry, clothed the naked, fostered the orphan more than any other single musical production in this or any country. Someone else wrote, perhaps the works of no other composer have so largely contributed to the relief of human suffering. The work has had an uncanny spiritual impact on the lives of its listeners. One writer has stated that Messiah's music and message, quote, has probably done more to convince thousands of mankind that there is a God than all the theological works ever written. The composer's own assessment, more than any other, may best capture his personal desire for his well-loved work. Following the first London performance of Messiah, Lord Kinnall congratulated Handel on the excellent, quote, entertainment. Handel replied, my Lord, I should be sorry if I only entertained them. I wish to make them better. As I indicated, Messiah is the title of this musical masterpiece. The Messiah is the title of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is my hope that by the time this meeting is done, you will not simply love and admire Messiah, but that you will believe in and love the Messiah who died to save. If we just take that concept of hallelujah, literally meaning praise the Lord, we find that that is a transliteration from the Hebrew, just simply carried over into English. It occurs, as I've said, four times in the New Testament, and where we read in Psalm 145, David tells us why God should be uh, worshipped, Psalm 150, that is, where God should be worshipped, how he should be praised and worshipped, and from whom, by whom he should be praised, that everything that has breath, praise the Lord. When the psalmist said, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, it just made me think, could we marshal for just perhaps 15 or 20 minutes, could we marshal, at least in our thinking, some reasons why God should be praised? And I would start, first of all, with creation. In what is obviously an inhospitable universe, we find ourselves on a planet miraculously fitted for life. Think about the position of the planet. Closer to the sun, we fry. Farther away from the sun, we freeze. Think of its axial tilt. That's a remarkable thing. If the Earth didn't have a, a tilted axis, there wouldn't be any seasons. 
It would be always cold in certain parts of the world and blisteringly hot in others. Remember C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, always winter, always winter and never Christmas. Imagine always winter. How would you like to live constantly in what we went through on Monday, Sunday and Monday, always winter? But because of the tilt, because of the tilt of the planet, we have seasons. Now let me just explain, if I can, quoting somebody else, how remarkable this is. Michael Turner is an astrophysicist at the University of Chicago and Fermilab. He said that the precision, let me back up a minute before I tell you his words. Suppose I told you that if you put a dartboard on those doors at the back, that I could hit the, a bullseye from here. You would say, wow, that's, that's remarkable. Suppose I told you I could hit a bullseye from here 10 times in a row. You say, well, I hardly think that's likely. Suppose you open that door and you open the outside door and you put the the dartboard across the street, and I told you I could hit the bullseye. You'd say, uh, let's sit you down, get you some milk and graham cracker cookies and calm you down, because you're not going to be able to do that. Suppose you move the dartboard a mile away. Now, got that in mind? Listen to what Michael Turner said. <laughs> the precision that is in our world, the finely tuned values, any one of which being off would create absolute chaos for life. The precision as this, as if one could throw a dart across the entire universe and hit a bullseye one millimeter, 0 0.04 inches in diameter on the other side of the universe. Others have pointed out that life on Earth is balanced on a knife edge, and the uh, mathematicians have estimated that there is one chance in, I know I'm just throwing figures out and they mean very little to us, but one chance in 100 billion trillion trillion, trillion, that there would be even one planet on which life could prosper. And here we are. You know what the Bible says? The heaven. Even the heaven of heavens belong to the Lord. But the earth has he given to the children of men. He's given us this planet. Should you not be praised for that? Think, think about the provision of the planet. Scientists vainly search for some evidence of water on other planets. If they can even find where there once was water, they're, 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 they're rejoicing because they think, wow, just think there's water somewhere else. But here, Earth gushes with brooks and streams and rivers and lakes and oceans and seas. The, the incredible irrigation system that God has built into our planet is astounding. Very often we take that for granted. Is not even being praised for that? Think about the pleasantness and beauty of the planet. Now you know we live in a world that's been ruined by sin. So I, I can't imagine what it looked like before sin marked because it's such a beautiful world now. This is a complete bonus. God could have made a monochromatic world. I remember the first computers I used were black and white when that computer crashed and went to buy another one. Remember the lady at HP saying to me, well, why aren't you looking at that? color screen. I said, well, they're dramatically more money. She said, she actually told me by my name. She said, Gene, you need color, right? Imagine if all we saw, the gray, shades of gray, black and white. Why would evolution include color? It's got nothing to do with, with, with anything other than the pleasantness of life. But God has given us a world with lush, verdant plains, towering, snow-capped mountains, sparkling blue waters, color, variety, beauty. They're all silently but brilliantly and eloquently preaching about a gracious, kind creator. 
And then there is the peopling of the planet. In the creation of humans, God revealed not only his infinite wisdom, but his wonderful grace. He gave us bodies capable of interacting with our environment in marvelous ways. It was Aristotle who posited that we have five senses. But many neurosurgeons, pardon me, neurologists, identified nine or more senses. Some list as many as 21. Let me talk to them about that. He gave us bodies so that we could interact in this world. He gave us souls to appreciate, among other things, beauty, symmetry, order, music, and other human beings. He gave us spirits to appreciate our creator and to actually be able to interact with the Almighty. Should he not be praised for that? Let me tell you just very quickly about Jane Olson's parents. They were Christians. She and her physician husband were agnostic. They, that, of course, led to many discussions about the Bible between these couples. Finally, the young doctor and his wife agreed to study Christianity. Dr. Vigo Olson said, quote, I implied that our study would be honest and objective a sincere search for truth. But our agnostic bias made us begin the search in a diabolically clever way. We were going to prove that the Bible was not the word of God. So they decided that they would study the Bible and they were trying to pull it apart. They made a list of uh, what, made a, a heading of a list of what they were going to find of the scientific mistakes that were in the Bible. And they began the quest. They had to read the Bible to do that. This is what he said. Contrary to our previous understanding, we found the Bible to be historically accurate. To the science of archaeology, the Bible owes its vindication in the matter of historical accuracy. Then we found that there was remarkable scientific accuracy in the Bible. The exact target of the attack that Joan and I launched to disprove Christianity and Christ. We encountered great difficulty, however, in finding scientific mistakes. Again and again, we were forced to cancel out seeming mistakes because of more up-to-date evidence or information. After months of serious questioning, Dr. and Mrs. Olson concluded that the Bible is indeed God's message to mankind. So now they began to read it without the bias, and not long afterward, they both accepted Christ as their Savior. May I tell you where those two agnostics ended up? They ended up in Bangladesh, preaching the gospel and functioning as doctors to help the people. Two people who were determined to prove the Bible was not the word of God, but they read it and found the wisdom of the creator in this book led them to the son of God for salvation. Creation. I think I can go better than that. I want you to think about incarnation. That God Now, as far as we know, human nature has existed or will exist in only four modes. There is innocent human nature, which was like Adam before he fell into sin. He could sin, but he had not yet done so. There is sinful human nature, like Adam after the fall and like us. It is where sin becomes the dominant force in life and we need to be saved from it. There is holy human nature, which is Christ and his incarnation. He did not sin, and he could not sin. He was impeccable. We are impeccable. He was and is impeccable. More than innocent. More than innocent. He was holy. He was impeccable. 
Then there's glorified human nature. What Christ has now and what the redeemed will have when the Lord Jesus returns for them. They will, humans who will be forever free from sin. Now at the birth of the Lord Jesus, no new person came into existence at the conception and birth of the Lord Jesus. He existed previously. A new human being began, but the person had always existed. As we noted last night, he was born a king, not a prince. He was born with all of the qualifications to reign. And the virgin birth bypassed the ban that God had pronounced on a certain line of Judean kings, and thus Christ was born with all the qualifications to reign. But he was born a savior and not a sinner because he had all the qualifications to redeem. The virgin birth bypassed the blight, the transmission of sinful human nature that goes from parent to child ever since Genesis chapter 3. Think of his grace and come. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is he not to be praised for this? There are stories in mythology of, of, of the gods coming down to visit. By the way, there's nothing in mythology, nothing in mythology that is equivalent to what the Bible teaches about the incarnation. But there are stories of gods who failed themselves and moved among human beings and nobody knew that they were gods. And what did they do? They shed that supposed humanity and went on back to Mount Olympus, right? I remember that I was just a young Christian when it dawned on me that in order to save me, The Lord Jesus had to become a human being forever. Forever. The Bible says in the Old Testament that he filled heaven and earth. Is there any place you can hide from me? Do not I fill heaven and earth. When Solomon dedicated this temple in Jerusalem, he said to heaven, even the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built. That that infinite, eternal being became a fetus and a baby and a boy and a teenager. You know how C.S. Lewis put it when he was talking about God being manifest in flesh. He said, how would you, how would you like to become a slug or a crab? But you know, even that even that stunning comparison fails from this standpoint. That a slug or a crab are still creatures. I would be a creature becoming another kind of creature. How can we measure the immeasurable? How can we measure the immeasurable distance between that throne and that name? Is he not to be praised for this? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I may have mentioned this before in previous meetings. Please bear with the repetition. I often think of it when I'm talking about this subject. But in November 1944, Adolf Eichmann organized the death march of 70,000 plus Jews to the Austrian border under the supervision of Hungarian gendarmes. Most of them were women and children. There was a man who followed this trail of misery in his car because he had convinced the Hungarian commanders to give him the authority to release 100 of those Jews. You know his name, Raoul Wallenberg. 
And so when that woe begotten procession stopped, these women, they were, they were being marched down the roads like a death march to the town, only in frigid weather. And they were bedraggled and filthy and dirty and their clothes were torn and they looked like they had walked through, through a barnyard. They, they, they were completely disheveled and unkempt and, and, and filthy. And into the midst of these people walked Raoul Allenberg, a gentleman. Let me give you the words of a woman who was there. The conditions were frightful. We walked 30 to 40 kilometers a day in freezing rain, <coughs> driven all the time by the gendarmes. We were all women and girls. I was 17 at the time. The gendarmes were brutal, beating those who could not keep up, leaving others to die in ditches. Suddenly, I heard a great commotion among the women. It's Wallenberg. It's Wallenberg, they said. I didn't think he could really help me anyway. I was too weak now to move. So I lay there on the floor as dozens of women clustered around him crying, save us, save us. I remember being struck by how handsome he looked and how clean, like a being from another world. Remember I told you what they were like. So she said, I was struck with how clean he was, like a, like a being from another world. And I thought, why? Why? Does he bother with such wretched creatures as we? And as the women clustered around him, he said to them, please, you must forgive me, but I cannot help all of you. I can only provide certificates for 100 of you. I feel I have a mission to save the Jewish nation, so I must rescue the young ones first. And she said, then, he saw me, and he came over to where I was. And he kneeled down to me and he said to me, what is your name? She said, I told him my name. And he wrote it in a list. And the next day, I and 99 other women were pulled out. All of the thousands of others went on to the, to the death camps. And I was saved. And I have so often thought of her words. He seemed like a being from another world, and I thought, why? Would he have an interest in such miserable creatures, such miserable and wretches as we? Please tell me why. Should the Lord Jesus have had any, any concern for you and me? Up in heaven, why should he ever have thought they'll perish unless I die? Why shouldn't I have caused any concern to him? We were the ones who had sinned. We were the ones who had turned from him. We had broken God's law. We had trashed his planet. We had smashed all his designs. Why should he have any concern for us? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Is he not to be praised for that? But I can go one better than information. I want you to think about redemption. First, Christ does the absolutely incredible thing of becoming one of us. Then he completely surpasses that by dying for us, suffering for us, sacrificing himself for us. What a wonder that, that, that we, ruined, marked by everything that should have repulsed him, were the ones he died for. That we, rebels, with enmity in our heart, determined to continue in our own chosen path and be our own bosses. But for us, Christ 
died for the ungodly. Christ died for our sin. Do you know what he accomplished? It is a work that will never need to be repeated. Remember those remarkable words in the book of Hebrews? Every priest stands daily, every day, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. Every priest, every day, all the sacrifices that it can't take away sin. But Christ, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. You see, there is intrinsic value in what the Lord Jesus accomplished on the cross because he was impeccable. He had no sins of his own. He was offering himself up to God as a sacrifice for sinners, and he had no sins of his own. Now, there's a wonderful illustration of what I'm trying to say to you in the Old Testament. You will remember that Joseph was taken by his brothers and he was sold into slavery down in Egypt. And you will remember that unknown to them, Joseph, through the prison, eventually ends up actually prime minister of Egypt. He's sitting on the throne when his brothers come in to buy corn years later and they don't recognize Joseph in the swarthy figure of this supposed Egyptian on the throne. He knows them, they don't know him. And do you remember how he deals with them? Until eventually he has them terrified that he's going to lock up their brother Benjamin and Judah steps forward. And Judah says, basically, our father's life is bound up in the life of this boy. If something happens to Benjamin, our father will die. Here, take me instead. Then you have a problem with that. Ten men had sold Joseph into slavery. Ten. He was the 11th, and Benjamin wasn't even there. Judah was guilty. Benjamin was innocent. How could a guilty man take the place of an innocent man? Well, that wouldn't work. And so it can't be. See, if I was going to have a substitute who would die for me, I needed somebody who was sinless, because I was sinful. And that's why there's such intrinsic value to the work of Christ, because he was absolutely stainless. But there is infinite value. Because beyond being an absolutely perfect human, he was the son of the eternal God. And that's what made it possible for him to die for all. Notice one more Old Testament illustration. The Israelites had made a golden calf. They danced around it, and that awful euphemism is that they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It was a scene of, 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 of gross and crass immorality. And the next day, Moses says to them, I'm going to go up to see the Lord. Because he knew that judgment would fall. So he goes up and says to the Lord, this people have sinned a great sin. But if thou wilt forgive their sin. And by the way, that is one of the unfinished sentences in our Bibles. One in Genesis 3 is one in Exodus 32. And I think you'll never have to worry about this word again. But in the English language, that is an apostatic passage. It's, it's, a, it's a statement that's left unfinished. Moses is so overwhelmed with the thought that God wouldn't forgive them if I will forgive their sins. And if not, block me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. He says, let me die instead of them. But how, how could Moses be a substitute for a whole nation? He was only one man. He was innocent. He hadn't danced around the golden calf, so it wasn't like, like Judah trying to take the place of Benjamin. He was innocent. He wasn't involved in the sin, but he was only one man. He was finite, just like you and me. So at best he could die to save one person. 
Please listen to me. What happened at Calvary was that the infinite Son of God offered himself up for you, sacrificed himself for you, died for you, gave everything he had, that's how he described it in the parable, gave everything he had to save you. And the moment that a helpless sinner turns from all his or her own efforts and trusts Christ for salvation, God saves that person for eternity because of the value of what Jesus did on the cross. That is why the Bible says that it is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that cleanses from all sin. But I can tell you something I think is equally wonderful. Not just creation. <coughs> not just incarnation. Not just redemption. But I'm going to tell you that there is going to come a restoration of this planet. Christ is going to come back and he's going to rescue this planet from sin. Injustice, immorality, ungodliness, violence, man's inhumane and inhuman treatment of other human beings, a planet that has been been cursed because of sin. He's going to rescue this planet. He's going to bring in a millennial and eventually an eternity in which there will never be sin again. There once was a paradise in this world, but it was vulnerable, wasn't it? Adam opened the door and sin and Satan rushed in bringing death with it. There's coming a universe where there will be no one capable of sinning because everyone with him will be a saved person with a glorified body and he is going to bring in a world where want will be gone forever. Where war will be gone forever. Where woe and sorrow will disappear. Where weariness and pain will be gone. And a whole coming universe of bliss center around the Lord Jesus. I love the way Walter Martin put it. He used to debate, publicly debate people who were from um, cult beliefs. And he used to sometimes end the discussion with them by saying, uh, I've read the book, I know how it ends. Jesus is going to win. I've read the book, I know how it's going to end. You know, sometimes you're reading a book and you say, oh, I hope, I hope he survives. I hope she doesn't die. And you want to kind of look at it and see, well, I know how it's going to end. Jesus is going to win. And if you're going to be with him, then there has to be a day in your life when you personally trust him. Let me just end by telling you this, because it's about the only time of the year when I can use this interesting story to me. There was a, a young boy named Wally. He was seven years old. He was very big for his age. He's heavy set, big, and mentally slow. Let's just leave it at that. He was a slow learner. And when a Christmas program came at school, everybody wondered, well, what are they, what's the teacher going to be Wally to do uh, with his inabilities? And so uh, they thought, well, they could maybe give him the job of pulling the curtain, do something like that. So um, finally they decided Wally would be the innkeeper. And he only had one line he had to learn, one line. And he went over and over practicing it, trying to learn it. And that was, there is no room in the inn. There is no room in the inn. So, a boy that was playing Joseph, the woman, the girl that was playing Mary, 
they would come to the door, they would knock, and Wally would open this door on the play in the school stage, and Wally would say, there is no room in the end. And he practiced that. He went over and over and over. You'd hear him saying it at home, and now the day came for the play. And so the lights dimmed, curtain parted, play began. Boy and a girl walk up to the door, knock on the door. Wally opens the door, and the man, the boy, says, Please, sir, my wife is not well. Could we have a room for the night? Now, Wally had practiced this line, so he began. There, there is, uh, there is, and his mind went completely blank. And the quick thinking boy who was playing Joseph said something to the effect of, we'll, 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 we'll just go over here. And he took Mary's hand and they started to walk away. And as Wally saw them walking away, he's desperately trying to get the words out. And he, he finally just blurted it out. He said, no, no wait, look, come home with me. He said, there's plenty of room. <laughs> come home with me, there's plenty of room. Why did the world close the door to the Lord Jesus? Why do human beings close their heart to the Lord Jesus? Why is it possible somebody here will leave the meeting without salvation when Christ came to save them? And why wouldn't you tonight, after all he's done, why wouldn't you tonight come to him and trust Christ as your Savior? And the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is why he came. This is why he died. I say to you again, he is to be praised for the creation of a world so suited for us. He is to be praised that he actually came down here and became one of us. He is to be praised in that becoming one of us was so that he could actually die for us. And he is to be praised because he's going to rescue this planet from the mismanagement of man and the chaos created by sin. And he can rescue your life and save you tonight you will personally trust him. Shall we pray? Father, we thank thee for bringing us here safely, and we ask for thy blessing on thy word and on this audience. We could ask for nothing greater for each one here than the salvation of the souls of men and women and girls and boys who have joined us. We ask for safety as we go to our homes, giving our thanks in the Savior's worthy and precious name. Uh, thank you again. Um, if you don't mind placing the hymn booklets at the back, I don't need them for the next series of meetings next week. Um, we're going to sing number um, 13. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns a lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. We'll sing verses 1 and Three, one and three with the course of number 13, and the meeting is over. Oh, come, oh, come in.